0: Welcome to Thinking Like a Lawyer, with your hosts, Ellie Mistal and Joe Patrice, talking about legal news and pop culture, all while thinking like a lawyer, here on Legal Talk Network.
1: Hello, and welcome to another edition of Thinking Like a Lawyer. There's some quick applause. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Joe Patrice from Above the Law, and with me, as always, is my co-host Ellie Mistal.
2: It's amazing to me sometimes how lay people use the term "thinking like a lawyer" as a slur.
1: Yeah, like. you know that's interesting. <laughs> I, that came up. Uh, I guess it wasn't really used as a slur this week. We'll talk about this, but yeah. it came up this week, and I was like, "Oh, that's the name of my show." Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, well, that's exactly why I was thinking of it. Yeah. No. um Yeah. So how are you? I'm pretty pissed off this week. Oh, really? What a surprise. Yeah.
2: I mean, this. So first of all, I should tell the listeners um, that I am doing this podcast kneeling because it is my right to kneel or not stand or sit if I damn well want to. And the thought that I should be forced Forced like a like a tool like a field hand to stand just because you play some goddamn song is an anathema to the American experience. I am obviously talking about the NFL the NFL for reasons passing understanding. Um, Decided to wade back into the anthem controversy, which had been completely dying out because nobody actually cares about black football players being blackballed and not being able to get jobs. The controversy was actually dying out, but the NFL wade back in and promulgated kind of a new rule-ish thing um, that says that football players during the anthem, if they come outside, which they don't have to, but if they come outside, they have to respect the national anthem, although who the hell knows what that means. Right. It's supposed to mean that they can't kneel during the anthem.
1: Yeah, I saw somebody uh, wrote a thing that that triggered for me the thought, we really need to recruit Jehovah's Witnesses into football <laughs> just to put this case uh, right where it needs to be. Because obviously they have won the right, not that they won the right, their rights that pre-existed were vindicated by the courts years and years ago, that they don't have to uh, stand for a national anthem or a Pledge of Allegiance or anything like that. So it would be interesting if we treated, you know, regular people with the same... <laughs> Dignity and respect we seem to treat yes. religious groups. If
2: only not getting shot by cops was also a deeply held religious belief, yeah. then perhaps the NFL would have to allow players to protest in whatever way seems seems best to them. Yeah, look as Jamel Hill said, and if you don't follow Jamel Hill on Twitter, you're you're doing it wrong, man. Um, the, the, she was kind of pushed out of ESPN. Now she writes for the undefeated. Um, which is also in the ESPN family, but she is great. Um, And as she put it exactly perfectly uh, this week, when she said that the NFL played itself because they only did this to try to keep big bad Mr. Trump off of their, you know, from calling their players sons of bitches. And in fact, after the NFL promulgated its policy, Trump came out and said, well, if you don't come out for the anthem, that's just as bad. And people who don't respect the anthem shouldn't be allowed in the country. That's the president of the United States saying people should be banished for not having subservience
1: to a song. I mean, look, the list of to-do items for ICE right now is already pretty long. (laughs) Uh, Obviously people speaking Spanish in restaurants is now on their agenda so uh, thanks to Aaron Schlossberg's video so why not add throwing Michael Bennett out of the country while you're at it so
2: anyway so I'm in a pissy mood
1: but anyway that's not what we're talking about I'm talking about we're going to talk about a
2: thing to put us in a whole different kind of pissy mood
1: we we will we will though first we're going to briefly talk about now you never lateraled you'd only worked for one firm. no I just
2: washed the fuck out
1: (laughs) Well, it's not necessarily that. <laughs> I, I, however, did lateral, which is why our our sponsor, Major Lindsey in Africa, is a interesting topic to think about, especially for those of you in your careers who haven't yet moved firms. But, you know, that day comes. It's rare that you end up somewhere for your whole time. So Major Lindsey in Africa is our sponsor. They're a world-leading legal search firm that helps move talent from one firm to another. You're not going to know everything about the legal market when you're starting out. And it's useful to have somebody out there who can say, this is what you like. Well, then you probably would love moving over here. You'll get a better deal over here. That's what Major Lindsay Africa does. And we're happy that they are our sponsors. They've been doing that for 35 years, not sponsoring us, but that job. And so we uh, wanted to give a shout out to them. If you're interested in learning more about them, it's at www.. MLA global.com. Don't know why I said WWW. I think everyone assumes that at this point. And
2: as does Google at this point.
1: Yeah. Anyway,
2: I got an email just uh, yesterday from an in-house friend who was looking to, to hire a new lawyer. Oh yeah. And he was like, well, where should I find these uh, lawyers who want a lateral? Should I go on LinkedIn? And I was like, (laughs) no idiot. You, you go, you actually go to a recruiter. There are people who do this professionally. (laughs) 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 So if you are looking
1: to lateral
2: out, Um, No, posting your resume on LinkedIn is not the way to do it. Check out our friends at Major (laughs) League.
1: Right. So that's our career advice for the day. So what what are we talking about? Are we moving to a discussion about law schools? We are. Oh. And terrible law school exams. Yeah, this is the end of the year. So this is the time where we are going to get our law school exam horror stories. And uh, we got a doozy. At above the law, if you've not read, we've got a couple of stories about it. Let, break down what this law school exam was for us.
2: Yeah. So at the University of Texas, an African-American professor teaching constitutional law um, on one of his essay questions. So the essays for this particular exam were 50 percent of the grade and the multiple choice was the other 50 percent um, because this is the University of Texas and not an elite school like Harvard where you can't get away with half of your grade being a multiple choice exam. Um.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. Um. Multiple choice.
2: I mean, who does that? Who does
1: that? You know who does that? I actually do know the who does that. Bar. No, no. Well, yes. <laughs> but no. A law professor who does that. Amy Wax does that. <laughs> uh, Amy Wax of Penn, who's notoriously been uh, banned from teaching one else because of her um, not cool with race comments. So, perfect segue, actually, right? So, this African-American professor, one of
2: the questions on the essay portion of the exam was explain to basically offer a defense of segregation. He was talking about Brown v. Board of Ed. He wanted the students to analyze that case, point out the weaknesses in it, and defend segregation as a constitutional proposition in the exam.
1: Mm -hmm. Actually, I'm going to go one more. It's slightly worse. It wasn't just defend the other side of Brown. It was, pretend you're in 1954 writing a defense of Brown, which I think is a nuanced problem and not the big problem, so I'm going to expound on it here so we can get it out of the way. What's the point in a common law system based upon precedence to say to a law student, consider that all the laws that happened after the fact don't exist and put yourself in the mind of something that happened a long time ago, that it's actually useless unless time travel becomes possible, at which point... I guess then I would turn to a lawyer from
2: Texas. (laughs) Yes, so exactly. He asked the students to put their heads in the minds of a confederate and um, defend segregation. This exam uh, pissed quite a few people off. It did. Although the emails that we got being pissed off about it were not from African-American students, all like four of them um, (laughs) at UT, sorry, but from white students who were like, what the hell is up with this question? They then referred us to... As
1: one would assume, happened a blog post written by uh, some kind of Mark Mark Pulliam, He's uh, he's a Texas he's, he's a Texas blogger who actually writes about the University of Texas quite a bit. Um, but he also has a right wing blog talking about you know law students being snowflakes and stuff. Right, and
2: so this so he turned it into a whole like oh the social justice warriors are so butthurt because they were asked, but real lawyers have to argue both sides. Yes which is about when Joe and
1: I started weighing
2: in. So you had the first...
1: Yeah, I jumped on this early. I think that there's... I do think there's a problem with the time travel aspects of it because we don't live in that universe. I also think, though, that the, the problem with claiming that you have to argue both sides is that it is very... And you hear this a lot, and this is where he used the language thinking like a lawyer in this article, actually. The problem is that's not actually how your career works. You don't... It's kind of a sepia-toned idea of how lawyering works. But you aren't some weird generalist who it's a quirk of who comes in the door of who your clients turn out to be. That isn't who you are. You choose and have a lot of control over what kind of practice you have. Uh, if you decide to go into criminal law, you have a choice of whether or not you ever want to be a prosecutor. Maybe you only ever want to be on the defense side. Some people go both sides. Some people don't. A case that I brought up in the piece, actually – Lisa Bloom, famous lawyer, was reached out to by Harvey Weinstein in the immediate aftermath of those allegations and briefly flirted with representing him, but ultimately didn't because her practice is based on defending women and it would be bad for her practice to get into that game. You make choices. It's such
2: a lay person's dumb view of what lawyers do to act like lawyers are just kind of – mouths in bubbles who are willing to say any old thing that comes out of their yep. that, that, that their client demands right as joe is saying lawyers do choose their practice areas in part based on what they can morally stomach yeah. you know there are a lot of criminal defense lawyers who won't represent kitty pornographers yeah. and wife beaters they just won't do it because they don't have they don't. They don't want to be on that side of the argument. My wife, when she works pro bono, she works pro. She does does uh, uh, asylum work, mm-hmm. right? So she mm-hmm. she she helps people seeking asylum. I think it's really good work. I'm very really proud of her. She that was a late career kind of transition from her. For her, at first, she did kind of criminal appellate work, mm. and it turned out that was morally questionable stuff. Because even though we can both sit here and say, like, a lot of these people in jail did not receive full and effective representation and desperately need the help of lawyers they a lot of them did it right yeah. <laughs> a lot of them did it and kind of walking into rikers uh, to defend somebody who well he didn't kill his girlfriend he m- most certainly beat her a couple of times but he didn't actually kill her which is why he's at riker like that work was not you know was not something that my wife chose to do eventually so the this thought that just because you're a lawyer means that you have to be willing to argue any old, horrible argument, is just
1: wrong. And, and, it's, and it's unethical, too. And that's the thing that a lot of people don't understand, is like part of that zealously representing your client, which is an obligation you have as a lawyer, part of that does mean that if you can't bring yourself to offer the best possible representation for that person, it's unethical for you to be doing that. Someone else who can do that should be representing that person. Right. So, A, it is unlikely that many students at the
2: University of Texas are going to find themselves defending segregation in 1954, (laughs) no matter how much they might want to. But there's another aspect to this question um, that Joe hit on, and then I particularly hit on when I did a follow-up piece. Um, And that's that this question unfairly and particularly disadvantages African-American students in a way that white students cannot be disadvantaged. Now, that statement, and again, I wrote 1,800 words on this, so I'm going to summarize that now a little bit. That statement does bear some further inquiry, because it's not obvious, at least not to a lot of white people, why that question disadvantages a black student differently um, than a white student. And what I've tried to explain is that if you are an educated African American, and I do make a kind of a break here, Between an educated African-American versus just an educated black person perhaps from another country versus Mm. just an educated Latino – like it's different. But for the – part of the African-American experience, you know Brown v. Board of Ed long before you get to law school, long before you get to college because part of being educated as an African-American means that you know why you're allowed to be educated. Right. And Brown is the magic, Brown is the demarcation line between you being allowed to be educated and not. So, if you're an educated black person, you've kind of heard of the case before. Mm-hmm. Um, my own personal story my mother was born in 1950 in Mississippi. I know something about Brown v. Board of Ed. It's an important case, not just in my kind of intellectual pyramid, but it's, important, it's an important case in my family's history. That's the baggage that many African-American students bring with them when they get to law school in the first goddamn place, right? So while other white students might have heard of Brown v. Board of Ed in the milieu of Miranda and Roe v. Wade and some other Supreme Court cases that you kind of hear about in popular culture, for a lot of African-American students, this is – this again, this is part of their history. When they get to law school, then you get to law school. You read Brown v. Board of Ed and, you know – it's crap. It's a, for, for given the kinds of decisions that you're used to reading as a one L. Brown v. Board of Ed is a little bit out of left field. They use science. A lot of cases that you read as a one L aren't using science as part of their judicial analysis in any in any way. The science is explained poorly. I think is the nice way of saying it. It involves. Dolls? Are you effing kidding me? Dolls? My freedom, my ability to like sit in the front of the bus is because some white kids and black kids thought black dolls were
1: bad. What? It, it it's what we call sociology, but yeah, no, it's it's an experiment that they're describing. It's, it's what happened post Brandeis briefs. Yeah, it's yeah,
2: it's it's a it's a unusual case in the context of one L year.
1: It's also part of that is the 9-0 aspect of it. Uh, Part of getting it to be a unanimous decision involved paring it down to be the most simplistic that it could be. And I think that my con law professor was the late, great Derek Bell. And so a lot of my con oh my law God, class... I'm actually
2: jealous for the first time oh, ever of your education. Oh,
1: yeah. No. Uh, so we spent a lot of time on this case because he was fairly famous for criticizing that decision, but not in the way that this uh, exam question was, but in the argument that because of things like it being a 9-0, which made certain trade-offs, uh, because of the lack of follow-up and that, and so on... it it failed to produce the changes that it was really after and it created both a dismantling of the grassroots efforts that were working at the time as well as a backlash that became worse and he spends a lot of time talking about those sorts of questions so i mean i the idea that yeah it's not a great decision and part of that is part of the negotiation process is something that like resonates In my law school
2: class, I didn't have Derek Bell criticizing the case. I had racist white guy from Florida criticizing the case, right? Mm -hmm. And that's that's the other part of the the African-American experience. When you get to Brown, and there are criticisms that can be leveled at Brown. You know whose hands go up? It's all the other (laughs) racist jackasses in your class who haven't said crap all semester who now want to stand up and be like, oh, well, I don't know about – and they're not into it for the – Hardcore intellectual discourse about Brown, they're just into it to make it sound like segregation might have been okay. Yeah. That is the context in which you are now putting a question on the exam. Okay. That's why I'm saying that when you ask that question on the exam, it by its very nature is biased against the African American experience versus the white experience. The white experience allows you to kind of intellectually detach and just answer the question as an intellectual exercise. I'm not saying the black experience means that you can't intellectually detach, but the degree of difficulty there is ridiculously harder. Yeah. You shouldn't expect, you shouldn't, The we, we, we talked a little bit in both of our articles about what the white equivalent is, and there there is none, right? But there are a couple of people online who were like, oh, this is like asking a Jewish student to defend Nazi free speech. No, it's not. That's Nazi free speech. This would be act, act, like asking a Jewish student to explain why concentration camps should be constitutional and their grandmother shouldn't have made it out of Germany. Right. That's what it's like asking the Jewish student.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. The, the stakes are just a little bit higher. But it is true that like there's religious groups that potentially white people couldn't belong to that can approximate this discussion. But those questions aren't going to be what gets asked.
2: And why is that on a one on yeah, you know, the, the kind of the closing part of my post. And again, I it is important part of going to law school. It was important for me as a law student and as a thinker to be forced to wrestle with Brown in a much more intellectual way than I had previously. That was that's part of the reason why I paid the money for the education, right? But by the time I was ready to deal with Brown in a real way, I was a two out. I was a three out. <laughs> you know i had had some more training yeah. and more experience it was in a small uh, you know when we real when i really got into it uh, it was in a, tri- a larry tribe seminar yeah you know not in a in a 300 person uh, sorry 100 person 1l section right yeah. i'm not saying that you cannot ask tough questions about important cases obviously i'm saying that there is a time and a manner and a place to do it and a 1l freaking exam yeah half of which is multiple choice goddamn anyway yeah
1: is not the place yeah, no, I mean, you can have these sorts of conversations in a seminar where that's not really the focus of what's going on. I mean, it's just – and a thing that I talk about is, like, it. if you view an exam as a test of the material that you've covered in the course, what were they reading in the <laughs> course that could possibly have made Time Warp Yourself to 1954 and Defend Plessy? What? How? If your educate, if your one L course spent a couple of weeks reading that stuff, then you probably should get your money back because that's barely <laughs> useless for anything but this like shocking exam question. It's just not useful. And like, look, you can have a conversation about Brown today and say that it was wrong, and I wouldn't suggest that for the same reasons you're talking about, but. If you did say to somebody, hey, you represent a state who is being slapped with a lawsuit because technically, because as you know, geographic patterns and so on have played out, there is an argument against your state that de facto segregation has returned, which is probably true in a lot of states and
2: in a lot of places like New York.
1: Yeah. It, I mean, New Jersey just had is having this discussion. You could ask that question, and uh, not of one else, and you could ask that question, and I at least get why you would say, oh, that has some educational value for learning how to manipulate the various cases, blah, blah, blah. But this is just, there's no value to it morally or pedagogically. The, look,
2: the alt-right always wants to say, like, every question is okay. And I think if you listen to this episode closely, we're not saying questions aren't okay. We like questions. We like you know, taking a deep dive and looking behind um and, and looking deeper in, into things. Time, place, manner.
1: Yeah. Your grade should not rest on material that you never covered <laughs> that is also literally asking you to denounce your own being, right. probably.
2: Speaking of what your grade should rest on, what's your worst law school question that you actually had? Because mine Interesting. So so part of the Aspect here is that, you know, so the professor asked the question it doesn't necessarily mean the students have to answer it. Like and, and there's such I mean, look, you're dealing with law students, you're dealing with people who, who have self-selected to be risk averse. I get it. But. Just because some authority figure asks you to fix your mouth to say something dumbass thing doesn't mean you actually have to say it. You could have written the exam and said, you know, what, professor, I'm not answering this question. And here's why mm-hmm. you could have said, you know, what, professor, go fuck yourself. Here's why you could have said, hey, you know yeah. what? I'm not going to defend. I'm not going to defend segregation. I'm going to defend Brown. If you want to d- fail my grade on it, you feel free, sir. That takes a certain level of courage and a certain level of, of I don't even know what the word is. It's easy for me to say that given where I went to school, yeah. where I could have uh, suffer kind of a bad grade without it being uh, particularly career-ending for me. It's true. Uh, probably still true at Texas, but you, you don't go very far before, you know, you're asking students to risk a lot more than just uh, maybe you're asking students to risk too much. Yeah. But in point of fact, when I was in law school, I had a torts exam, and uh, the third question prompt was, you know, it was fact pattern, fact pattern, fact pattern. And the question goes, now, Mr. Mistall will say this is an example of how the tort system is a lottery. Yeah, Explain that's... to him why he's wrong <laughs> was the actual third question on my 1L torts exam.
1: Yeah, that's um that's not really fair for you. How do you think I answered it? My guess is you protested against the question. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Because <laughs> I said, I said, actually, Mr. mistall <laughs> is right. Blah 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 blah. Now, dumber people might say that blah 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 blah. Yeah. I gotta be. I was I was cool with it.
1: Yeah. That's fine. Yeah, no. Um mine is not nearly that much fun. I was taking course uh the second question he took real-life fact patterns, basically, and was like, now deal with the issues here. So and like a
2: law and order rip from the headlines kind of
1: thing? Kind of, yeah. But I mean, it, w- it was Conflict of Laws, uh, which was a course I was very good at. It's ultimately what I wrote my note on and stuff like that. But I did not do well in this actual course, <laughs> even though I did well on the concept of Conflict of Laws as it appeared in other courses, and I wrote my note and whatever. But on this course, I got tripped up because the second question was a real fact pattern of a wrongful death suit that had happened across state lines involving this and that and the other and break that down. And the people who had died, I actually knew. Wait, so what would you kill? What? Uh, what? what do you no, mean, you do? I mean, I knew them not closely, but professionally they, it was a question about a Kansas's debate team and stuff like that. And so they were people that I knew of professionally, um, like professionally, debate wise. So yeah, it was people who had died who I like knew of. I knew the like survivors of that and stuff like that. <laughs> so it was and I mean it was changed slightly in certain places, but like I was reading it and I was like, oh oh, okay. This. So yeah. So I how mean, did
0: you get that
2: question wrong? <laughs> oh
1: no, I mean it, it was a it was a question of it was a conflict of laws question so i'm rolling through it and i just kind of blanked on a couple of key concepts i didn't apply newmeyer to one of the issues of i think it was a rental agreement sort of a thing or whatever point is i don't really remember it but yeah i mean i just i was taken aback and i you know i soldiered on but it led to me screwing up some stuff so i got the b instead of the a that i was fully expecting (laughs) you know so yeah i mean these things happen uh Look, I do feel for professors sometimes
2: because you know, from a professorial standpoint, writing these exams questions and grading these exams are like very low on their hierarchy of things they care about. Mm-hmm. They're there for the academia. They're there for the scholarship. They're there to impart knowledge. Some, of them, I mean, there are a lot of professors who are very into the concept of teaching. An exam is not teaching. An exa- grading certainly is not teaching. And so they, they devalue um, and they minimize this part of their job. And the dissonance is so strong because for the student, it's the most important thing. Mm-hmm. For most students in most law schools, this part is the most important part. So you have the students kind of concerned about this above all else. And the professors, yeah, you know, number 10 on a list of 12 things that they care about
1: yeah and yeah it's i think we're coming close to the end here so to sum up this was a terrible exam question um <laughs> on just every conceivable level it didn't I, I i mean like i'm in a lot like the more <laughs> i try to think about this question because i back to that thinking like a lawyer thing i attempt to put myself in the place of asking this question and i'm just dumbfounded by it like there's never a scenario where i would think this would make any sense as a question
2: i mean, the only way i could i could see doing it is if i was teaching like truth to power like it was, as a college question right mm. not as a law school question but as a college question if i was kind of teaching truth to power and like uh, i wanted to basically ask a bad question to, to see, evoke that response to evoke a response of go fuck yourself professor ellie like that would be that would be the only version interesting yeah yeah, I mean, Which
1: is probably why I'm not a college professor. But. <laughs> Look, these discussions are important. It's worth going through them. It is not an exam question. And yeah. So yeah, if you out there have some awful exam stories, you should always send them to us because uh we'll we'll probably not follow up this episode with it, but uh we'll we'll hold them in reserve because uh that's a that's a good topic. So and you know how or you can send them to it's, us.
2: It's always a it's also a good way to you never know because we've write a post about it. You know, That's true. You can at least like piss off your professor pretty good.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, you know, you can send them to us by sending them to tips at above the law dot com or hit us up at Twitter. You're at LENYC. I'm at Joseph Patrice. Took a second there to remember that it's not Joe Patrice, which is dumb, but whatever. Point is, read above the law. Always uh, subscribe to this podcast. Give this a rating. Give it a, a review. review. That's a more important almost than the rating to actually have some words written there. It helps us get up their little algorithm. Subscribe to other Legal Talk Network podcasts always. Um, Catherine Rubino, who occasionally comes in and fills in on this show, also has a new show called The Jabot uh, after the thing that uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg wears. The so, doily. Uh, yeah, the, the doily is, is not what we called it, ultimately. <laughs> so uh, check that out. And uh, yeah. Keep looking. I need to paint my house. That's right. Okay. Talk to everyone later.
0: If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. You can also find us at AboveTheLaw.com, ATLRedline.com, iTunes, RSS, Twitter, and Facebook. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.